was a time when flowers and crops grew all year round. The goddess Demeter looked after them from her temple near Mount Olympus, home of the gods. From there she would fly out over the rich land and visit her daughter, Persephone. the underworld had taken Persephone. She didn't know what to think. Everything was so different. Persephone, this is an unusual situation for both of us. Your beauty, my love for you. Hades, how dare you talk to me about my beauty and your love? You live under the ground. How can you be in love with me? You've never even seen me until today. No, I have often watched you, reflected on you. Look, the god of love shot me with this. And now your father has given me permission to marry you. I would rather die. You have stolen me from my mother. Persephone! Where are you? Helios! I command you to help me! Where is Persephone? Zeus has given Persephone to Hades to be his wife. I will be proud all your feathers, even though you are my wife. How dare you take her away from me? She's a woman. It was time to leave you. She needs other arms to hold her. No, never! You! You, you won't let go, will you? Hermes! What is it, great Zeus? Good Hades! I order him to send Persephone back to her mother and quickly. I am not giving her back, sir. You have to send her back to her mother. I could suggest a way out for you. Go on. Speak. Get Persephone to eat just one of these seeds and she'll be able to stay with you for a month. A month? She is my wife! And is your mother-in-law. It's the only way to keep everyone happy. Why are your lips so red? Did Hades give you anything to eat before you left? Just some pomegranate. Pomegranate? How many seeds? It's four. Hades has tricked you. Now you will have to spend four months of the year with him. For those four months. And wither the plants. It will soon be time for you to go to him. Just four months? And then I'll be back? Yes. And until then, the wind will blow, and I shall cover the earth with snow.
uh, welcome to Greece. Home to gods and goddesses and uh, family dysfunction for thousands of years. The great god Zeus balked at me. Demeter, you look stoned. Pull yourself together and look alive. I told him he could stick that lightning bolt up uh, the next cloud he found. Look alive. Look alive. My family has been dragged through hell and back. Quite literally. I mean, talk about your family dysfunction. I can't go anywhere without getting strange looks. Especially you, right there, that look. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Well, you see, my brother Zeus told my other brother Hades that he could marry my daughter, making my brother my son-in-law and my daughter my sister-in-law. <laughs> what is this, Greece or Alabama? <laughs> anyway, you think your in-laws are bad. Let me just say, family reunions are a living hell. Imagine your daughter comes home and tells you she's marrying the Prince of Darkness. It's kind of hard to know the appropriate response. I mean, they don't exactly write an etiquette book on this kind of thing, you know? And as my daughter walked down the aisle, I thought to myself, she looks like death warmed over. I mean, talk about your beauty and the beast, am I right? Oh, and my brother... I mean, son-in-law. He's so cheap that he never uses the air conditioning. So whenever I go to visit, it's always hot as Hades in that place. But do you know why I lost my daughter? Do you know why she will be kept in the underworld for the rest of her life? I lost her to a pomegranate, of all things. A pomegranate? You know, all her life, I told her to eat healthy whole wheat grain from the land that I provided. She goes on this whole fruits and vegetables kick and sinks her teeth into a pomegranate in the underworld. And now I've lost her forever. You know, I really miss my daughter. Does anyone know the depth that comes from losing your only child? Of missing someone you love so dearly. So today in Clash of the Titans, we're talking about Demeter. Demeter was the one who was the goddess of the harvest. She provided the bread. She provided the grain. And the message of Christianity will be spread into a world that's obsessed with these Greek-Roman myths. And the writers will actually help contextualize the message of Jesus so it can be understood by a group that's obsessed by these type of stories we just heard. I like that last song. Don't we all struggle with injustice, grief, mourning? Why bad things happen, why we're missing someone, or jilted love. These were the stories the Greeks came up with to deal with this issue of how do you deal with loss and what's missing in your life. And if you were to ask a Greek or Roman, who is the bread of life? They'd say, well, Demeter is the bread of life. She provides the crops. She takes care of the land. We make our bread from the wheat that she provides. This was Demeter. This is what she did. In fact, the word that we use every morning for breakfast comes from Demeter. Demeter's Roman name is Sirius, and it's where we get the, the idea of cereal. Now, in the 1980s, uh, no one bought this cereal, so it went out of business, and I'm very unhappy about this, but I want to bring it back, uh, just so many of you who didn't have a chance to see it get a chance to see it, and that was um, Mr. T cereal. It was a wonderful thing. If you didn't get a chance to have it, some people said they cap copied off of Captain Crunch just because they happened to be corn-sweetened yellow cereal, but they were in the shape of tea, so they were totally different. So cereal 
comes from the French word cereal, having to do with cereal, which comes from the Latin cerealis, of or relating to Ceres, and Ceres is the Roman name for the Greek god Demeter. So cereal was a reminder that Demeter was your provider. She provided your grain. She was the bread of life. She was your breakfast. She was your source. Reminds me of another one of my famous uh, favorite Greek gods, Cinnabonus, <laughs> the uh, Greek god of gaining weight. And uh, I, I first encountered Cinnabonus when I was in Atlanta and have uh, gained lots of weight because of Cinnabonus. And my wife came across a recipe of how to make the Cinnabon buns. And so it was a very complicated recipe, more butter than you would ever imagine, and, and brown sugar. And she would be making the dough for the Cinnabons. And the dough would have to rise, 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 and you'd punch it down. Rise, 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 punch it down. So it would take all day long. This dough would rise and fall and rise and fall until she put it together with all that butter and all that brown sugar, and it became ultimate yumminess. And when you think about bread that rises and falls, that's probably a good metaphor to describe the contrast between Jesus and Demeter. Demeter is the bread that falls, and Jesus claims to be the bread that rises. And we're going to compare and contrast these two different breads, because Jesus is going to make some claims to be the bread of life that are going to come in contrast to Demeter's claims. And he's going to say, if you take me up on my offer as bread, I want to offer you daily strength, daily purpose. Daily meaning. Also, future confidence in resurrection of rising bread. But more than that, I want to offer you a whole different bread way of living. A totally different paradigm for finding purpose in your life. So we'll begin by looking at Demeter's bread, and then we'll look at Jesus' bread. So first, Demeter's bread. Demeter, just to give you a reminder from the video, if you came in a little bit late, who the characters are. So Demeter, Hades, and Zeus were brothers and sisters. They all had the same father. His name was Kronos. So Demeter marries her brother Zeus. They have a child named Persephone. Dad thinks it's a good idea to marry her off to good old Uncle Hades. This is family dysfunction at its worst. She then gets mad because she doesn't have her daughter anymore, and she curses the ground. And that's the first thing we learn about Demeter's bread. Her bread is a curse. She curses the ground so that now, whenever she's not with her daughter, there will be winter. And because she ate that pomegranate, she'll spend four months in Hades, which is where we get winter. And that was caused by the gods. In fact, I got a chance to visit one of Demeter's temples in Sardis. Here's the sign on the left, Demeter, the sanctuary of Demeter. The temple, the ruins of it are on the right. You'll see it's on the top of a mountain overlooking a massive city of Sardis. So if you were anywhere in Sardis, you would look up and see the temple to Demeter and be reminded, she's our sustenance. She's our provision. She's the one that gives us what we need. She's our bread, our daily bread. And if there was a famine going through the land, if bad things were happening, if you were a Greek you, and somebody asked you, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer was always the same. The God's fault. God's doing this to you. The reason we have famine, the reason bad things are happening in the, in, the, uh, in the culture or the winds is because Demeter is mad at us. Evil always came from the gods. So a couple of years ago, we had a guy who visited with us, and his name was uh, Don Byerly. Don Byerly is an Arctic explorer. He's also a scientist. And in his book, Surprised by Faith, he describes the difference between the different views of God that were helpful for him in his journey to faith. We've got this diagram in here, but I think this is helpful 
because there's something about Americans in particular that we really want all the religions to say the same thing. So you hear this many times, people say, well, you know, God, Allah, Buddha, Muhammad, it's all the same thing. But it's actually not at all. If, if you've ever really studied the gods, they're radically different. So as, as um, Dr. Byerly was going through a journey of his own spiritual awakening, he began to realize that there were some major distinctions between how different religions and philosophies viewed God. The first distinction is that some people attribute God to being an energy, and some ha- say he has attributes of personhood. Now, what's the difference? Well, pantheism, Indian religions, uh, New Age religions, uh, Hinduism would say God is an energy. You tap into it. They might call it spirituality. They might call it energy. But you want to tap into the energy that is God. You hear things like God is in everything. He's in you. He's in me. He's all around us. And as an artist, as a poet, I love that idea. It's very romantic. But I'm going to show you the, 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 the problems with it in just a moment. Now, the Christian view is very different. God is not energy. God is a person, meaning he has the attributes of personhood. God can love. God can comfort. God can, can have joy because people have these attributes. Think about the electricity in this building. Energy doesn't care, right? My light bulb doesn't care how I feel. It can't. It's energy. It doesn't hurt. It can't empathize with me. It's just on or off. I can use energy, but I can't have a relationship with energy. And it doesn't feel, right? Energy doesn't feel. So when you begin to see the distinction between the view of God and different philosophies, you immediately see that one half sees God as energy, the other half as a person. Attributes of personhood, he can love, he can comfort, he has joy. The next major distinction you see when you're you're dealing with who God is, is the idea of good and evil. You see, if God is energy, and if he is in everything, then he is in both good and evil. Think of Star Wars, right? Mm, yes, 960-year-old year, you be. See how good you look. <laughs> good old Yoda taught us about the Force. And there's a good side of the Force and a dark side of the Force. Are you scared? You will be, right? <laughs> and this is that pantheistic religion that says that God is energy. He's a Force. There's a good side of the Force and a bad side of the Force, but God is a Force. You don't get to know Him. You don't have a relationship with the Force. You use it. Now, here's what this distinction comes in. If the Indian religions are correct in pantheism, if God is energy and he's in everything, here's the the question you need to ask yourself. The question that a Christian comes and, and says, I don't know if I can believe that, and here's why. If God is in everything, that he's in a kiss to my wife, but he's also in a rape in the back alley. He's in compassion, and he's in murder. Because if God is in everything, he's in everything. And that is why the Christian view of God is totally opposite of this. It says that God is outside of creation. He is always good. He is never the author of evil. He's outside of his creation. I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, for the Greeks, they had a very unique view of God. They said that gods were persons. Oh, they could love. They could comfort. They could have joy. They were persons, but they also could be evil. They weren't distinct from evil. They could lust. They could have anger. They could have betrayal. In fact, they were a mess. And so if you were a believer in the Greek God, the Greeks were good and evil, the gods were, but they were persons. Christianity says that God is outside of his creation. Like a painter, he may have painted a lot of his, his, his uh, put a lot of himself into the painting, but God is not in the painting. He created a world with, with free will, and it did go awry, but he didn't cause it. And he's, he's as the painter working to restore it, but he didn't cause the problem. 
but he works with it. And this is where you see a very, in, in, in Dr. Byerly's book, he began to describe this idea. And he began to see that the God he always wanted, the God that rang true to his reason as a scientist, was the God described in the Bible. C.S. Lewis was a skeptic as well. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. If you've ever read it, you usually can only understand about 10% of it. Uh, so every time I read it, I get another 2%. In describing this idea of the Christian view of God, he said this. Christianity is a fighting religion. Notice, God's concerned about evil. It thinks God made the world, space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables, are things that God made up out of his head, like a man makes up a story. But also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world, that God made, and God insists, and insists very loudly, on putting them right again. And he says, I began to reflect on this idea of God. He said, my argument against God as an atheist was this. The universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just or unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, I should not have found out that it has no meaning. So for a Christian... Dealing with the problem of evil becomes much more complicated than just the gods did this to me. In fact, I'll sort of save you a four-year uh, or doctorate degree in philosophy. Here's all the major religions, all the major philosophies, only four views of evil and suffering. Four causes of it and four solutions of it. I'll give you what they are. One cause is that one uh, way to deal with the problem of evil happening in your life is not Demeter did it. It's that suffering is an illusion. Uh, Buddhism is one of the belief systems that takes this position. If you think of the movie The Matrix, there is no spoon. This world's just a, a, a dream. You need to remind yourself that your cravings, your suffering comes from cravings. Your cra- cravings come from a, a belief that you're a person. You need to enlighten yourself to the reality that this world doesn't really exist. Therefore, evil and suffering doesn't really exist. So the problem is, is diagnosed as suffering's an illusion, and the solution is it's not really happening. Don't worry about it. A little oversimplification, but it, it's probably a good snapshot. Second view is that suffering is karma. For the Greeks, it means the gods are doing this to you. If you practice Hinduism, it's the universe is doing this to you. If a little child dies in a hurricane or if there's a drought or a famine, the answer from the Greeks was it's Demeter's fault. If you came from a more Hinduistic perspective, it's karma. Well, what did the kid do? He did it in his previous life. So the, the diagnosis for the problem of evil is it's karma, always karma. The solution is not again. Through a whole system of birth and rebirth, the universe takes suffering, crushes it through the wheel of life, this rebirth. If you do better, you get a little bit nicer life, and then you get crushed again. And karma is the wheel that deals with the problem of injustice. That's view three. View four is what I'll call atheism. Evil and suffering is normal and natural. The world was born in in catastrophe and death and suffering. Richard Dawkins says, DNA neither knows nor cares if you're hurting, so we just dance to its music. Which means if you see injustice or famine or pain, it's always been this way. And it will always be this way. There's a guy from the BBC who used to play in Black Adder, was interviewed this week. And he said, as an atheist, if he came face to face with God, what would he say? He said, children with leukemia. How dare you call yourself a benevolent God? I'd much rather have the gods of the Greeks. At least they're honest enough to say their gods are good and evil. Christian gods claim to be good, and the world proves them wrong. That's a pretty strong argument, right? We all have to struggle with the problem of evil. 
Now here's what I want to, we're going to get done with philosophy in just a second. Everyone has to deal with the problem of evil. The atheist has to deal with the problem of evil and the Christian, the Hindu and the Buddhist. There's only four views. So if you ask the atheist, why is there evil and suffering? It's just always been that way. What's the solution to evil? It's not ever. Hitler will never be held accountable. Mother Teresa will never be rewarded. Death and dying and kids in tragedy will never. There'll be no recompense. There'll be no justice ever. So if you struggle with the problem of evil, you're probably already thinking like a Christian because the Christian view is this. Suffering is, the, is caused by a broken creation. There once was a world that was good and just, which is actually why you think evil's a problem. You're comparing this world with its brokenness to some world, some echo still in your heart saying, it shouldn't be this way. Well, why shouldn't it be this way? If it's always been that way. It's like you imagine a world that didn't used to have death and cancer and famine and disease. And so the Christian immediately explains why you have that feeling. And the world is currently broken, but it's very complicated. Sometimes it's because the society is, is out of alignment with God. Sometimes it's because a person is out of alignment with God. Sometimes it's because my urges are out of alignment with God. Sometimes it's because of natural disasters, because all the creation is out of alignment with God. Suffering is the result of a broken creation. And the solution from the Christian is, not yet. But God sees it, and he's going to fix it. You're like, that's so frustrating, not yet. Why not now? I'm with you. That's frustrating. I've spent many a night praying and crying for my special needs son. Part of his special needs are because of decisions made by his birth parents. And we're suffering, the, we're dealing with the consequences of that. But isn't not yet better than not ever? Or far worse, isn't not yet better than it's your fault? I sat down with a uh, friend. Um, we we're talking about dealing with special needs kids and how we could lead our families through it. And as we were talking, he shared with me his view on evil and suffering. He said evil is unreal, sickness is unreal, and healing and forgiveness is real. I said, well, that's interesting to me. I said, so we spent the last hour, a very tear-filled uh, um, time at Starbucks, and I said, so your view is that the sickness that your son has and my son has is unreal. Well, yeah, I've been teaching that my whole life. He said, well, well I guess it's real. I said, I wrote these four things on a napkin. I said, well, then why, why isn't your son healed? He goes, well, God can heal. I said, I know God can heal, but sometimes he doesn't heal. Why hasn't he healed yet? He looked at that list and he says, well, it's not an illusion. It's not unreal. He went to number two. I guess it's my fault that I'm not praying hard enough. You feel the weight of the guilt of karma in the room. And if you were Greek, you were always under guilt. The blanket of guilt. Because if bad things are happening to your crops, it's Demeter's fault. The gods are punishing you. Which is why we get to the second point, which is that uh, the third thing is that her bread was a curse that cursed the ground and caused the fall. It literally caused the fall, meaning the fall in the winter, but the fall of creation. Why creation itself was broken was because of Demeter. The third thing we discover about Demeter's bread is that her bread can't rise. Everybody's scared to death of Hades. Nobody could defeat Hades in the Greek-Roman world. They're terrified of it. But here is this all-powerful God who can't even rise her own daughter from Hades. This is not a powerful God. She's restricted. She can't even get the one thing she wants the most. In fact, in a Percy Jackson movie, they have a scene where Persephone and Hades, apparently after you're married to the Prince of Darkness for a little bit, it sort of wears off after a while, and things don't go real well a little bit later on in their marriage. 
Let's watch. Stephanie, what could possibly be taking so long? Don't ignore me. Or what? What will you do? I'm already in hell. Welcome. You're Hades? Yes. Oh, sorry. I, just didn't, I didn't expect you to look like this, man. <laughs> kind of stylish. I like it. <laughs> Would you prefer that I looked like this? In that culture, the Mick Jagger thing, in that, in that culture, folks were terrified of Hades. He was the ultimate power. And yet they would worship Demeter, even though she didn't even have power to get her own daughter back. So here we have this powerless God who punishes creation. She's the cause of evil. Yet every year you'd get together and you'd offer her first fruits. You'd take the first wheat from your garden and you'd call it the first fruit offering to Demeter. If you worshipped Athena, you'd give her the first fruits of your olives. If you worshipped Dionysus, you'd give him the first fruits of your grapes. So it's a way of saying, Demeter, you're the bread. Here's the first of the bread, and we're hoping, hoping, hoping you don't cause another famine. Please, 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 here's the first of our crops. Don't kill the rest of them. Let the rest of them grow so that we can sustain ourselves. Well, later on, the Christian shows up, and the Christian comes into this world and says that Jesus is the first fruits. And many people have accused Christianity of copying off the Greeks. The Greeks had first fruits. First Corinthians 15 says Jesus is the first fruits. Oh, come on. Let me give you a timeline. Let me use this timeline to help you understand that Jesus and the apostles are living between 30 to 70 A.D. or ministering. The Greeks are very famous around Alexander the Great, 356, moving into the world of Jesus. Even goes back as far as 750 B.C. when Homer writes the Iliad and mentions a few of these things. But the idea of first fruits... Jesus is not copying off the Greeks. He's fulfilling Moses, who the Greeks copied off of. You see, in 1500 B.C., there was a Feast of Tabernacle where you would take your grain offering before God and thank him for providing the grain. You would thank him for being your provider, being your daily bread. You'd be reminded that Moses brought you through the wilderness and God sent bread from heaven called manna. Jesus shows up and says, you know that thing that... That Moses talked about, I am the bread of life. I am the first fruit of resurrection. He's fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures from Moses. The Greeks copied off of the Hebrews. And so when Jesus comes in as a, a masterful teacher, he's able to fulfill one audience while comparing and contrasting himself from the bread of the Greeks. So here's one of the things that Paul writes. Paul writes and says, Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection. Meaning, Jesus defeated Hades. He did in reality what Demeter could not do in myth. He came and defeated Hades himself. And he's called the first fruits. Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. In other words, if he defeated death, not in myth, Christianity says he did it in history, then he is the first one to do it. And if you believe in him, you can be the part of the harvest of those who get harvested later. Meaning God will raise you from the dead if you trust in him. Christ is the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming. So he says, if you believe in me, I can, I'm the bread that rises, and I can raise you from the dead just as I raised myself. That's the claim here. So Jesus actually makes three claims. We'll look at them quickly. Jesus' bread, number one, 
It didn't cause the curse that made the world broken. He says, my bread can break the curse. A group of people came to Jesus one day and said, hey, how do we get on this God thing? We want to do the works of God. What do you do to become a Christian? What do you do to, to have this religion thing you're talking about? Look what they say. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe. Well, I think many people still wonder that. What, what do I do to become a Christian? What do I do to get religious? What do I do to pursue this, this life of Jesus? He doesn't look at the answer to the question. There's no doing going on. What The first step is to believe in me, whom he, God, sent. Then he references back to Moses. Moses did not give you bread from heaven. God provided that manna from heaven. And in the same way, my father gives you the true bread from heaven, which is me. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I came into this world to defeat death. Demeter causes death and famine. I came to defeat Hades, which she could not rise and defeat. I have come to defeat. And he'll predict it over and over and over again. I am the bread. Then he launches into this real grotesque section. He says, I am the bread. And by the way, you need to eat my body and drink of my flesh. And he who eats my body partakes of me and has eternal life. And he who doesn't drink of it. And you're like, ooh. It's like Hannibal Lecter. Jesus is Hannibal Lecter. Clarice. <laughs> Excellent. It's like nasty stuff. Let me tell you what's going on. Christians take the Bible literally, but that doesn't mean that when you take the Bible literally that you don't account for figuratism. Jesus said he was the bread one sentence ago. We don't think Jesus thinks he's an actual loaf of bread. We think he literally said this. And Jesus, speaking in metaphor, says, just as I am the, the spiritual bread of God, and bread is something you take into you, so my body, my literal body, will be broken like a piece of bread. On a cross, and I will defeat Hades. And by believing in that and taking that belief into you, it can change you. You need to take my body into you, take my blood into you, and I will wash you and forgive you. So that's what he's describing. But if you are a worshiper of Demeter, you actually wouldn't be grossed out by that at all. Whether he was literal, saying, you know, you know eat or not, because at, at the temple of Demeter here, you'll see a well. As you got done with the worship, you'd come out of the main gates and there'd be a well over here. You'd step into the well. They would cut the throat of a, of a bull and they would pour the blood over top of you. Oh, and you would be washed in the blood. And you'd be cleansed of your wrongdoing by the blood that was dripping from you. So in a culture that was obsessed with blood washing for forgiveness... Jesus came and said, oh, I'm going to spiritually do that. I mean, I'm going to literally die on a cross, and I'm going to literally be killed to give you forgiveness. But if you believe that that happened in history, you don't have to wash yourself in blood and all that nastiness. Trust that I was literally killed and broken to forgive you of everything, past, present, and future. Now, if that's true, it is good news. Jesus' bread breaks the curse of death and it gets you out of the bondage of guilt, the bondage of shame, the bondage of not knowing if you're ever acceptable for God. You are forgiven of everything you've ever done that you can remember and the things you can't, the things you did do and the things you should have done. It's all forgiven. And when you partake of that, when that becomes part of your life, God has forgiven me of everything. When you eat of that, when you take that into yourself, it transforms your life with new freedoms. 
54-year-old convict. His name is Gary Leon. He was convicted of killing 48 women. He was cold, emotionless, heartless at his conviction. He admitted to doing it, so he didn't even remember their faces or their names. He was able to stand face-to-face with his accusers, and the families of the accusers were able to tell him how they felt about him. And he stood emotionless as they screamed at him. I want you to watch a quick scene from that and notice what happens from a guy who did understand this message of Jesus. Let's watch. In your words, you said that they didn't mean anything to you, but she meant everything to us. She was a mother. She was a wife. She was a sister. And we miss her. Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's going to go to hell, and that's where he belongs. But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and it is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. How in the world could you forgive something like that? How would you do it? I mean, Granny Santa Claus, so that helped. <laughs> but you know how? Because when you realize that God has forgiven you so much, you can still love somebody enough to send them to prison to have justice for what they've done, but you can also free yourself from bitterness by saying, if God forgave me of killing his son on the cross, then I can even forgive this so that I can walk in freedom. Jesus, that's the way that his forgiveness breaks the curse. But here's where it gets unbelievable. Jesus says, and my bread offers security. It's the one sure thing in life. Now, Christians call this eternal security, if you've heard this before. But if you haven't heard of it, just look at how Jesus says it. Still in his bread metaphor. I am the bread of life, for I have come down from heaven. I do not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, the Father. So this is God's will. If you want to know God's will for your life, here it is. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them all up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may, not, may have eternal life, everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is so good. If you believe that God sent Jesus to forgive you, if you believe that, then God says, great, you're the first fruits. Jesus, you defeated resurrection, right? You, you defeated death. You raised yourself. You're the first fruits of resurrection. Here's my will. This person believes in me that I sent you. I'm handing them to you, Jesus. And my will is that you raise them up. Don't lose any. The will of God is that you would raise them all up and lose nothing, he says. And Jesus will take you when you put your belief in God. And sending Jesus to die for you. And Jesus says, I'm doing the will of God and that I can guarantee to you. Not maybe I'll get to heaven. Not I wish I'd get to heaven. Maybe I'm acceptable. Maybe if I jump around twice and spin around and maybe if I give this much money. No, you can know it. Because if Jesus loses you, he's no longer doing the will of God. And he's no longer even acceptable or qualified to be the sacrifice. 
the nature of the Bible offers is a guarantee that this bread will raise you one day. This is rising bread. It's confident bread. And if you bank on that bread from heaven, if you believe in that blood of he- that bread of heaven, if you trust in that bread of heaven, just as he raised himself, he will also raise you. It's guaranteed that Jesus would lose nothing. And then Jesus offers something phenomenal. His last verse. He says, and I'm going to offer a way of living your life that can produce life out of death. Walk along one day through a field and he says, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And we know how seeds work. You drop a seed in. But until it dies and opens and breaks, it's then that it begins to grow. It's then it begins to produce. It's then this one little seed can produce a thousand seeds. It's through death that life occurs. And Jesus says, you thought life was about accumulating and grabbing and controlling and taking and demanding. No, that won't get you anywhere. Living through death is what brings you satisfaction. When you die to greed, you see a harvest of generosity in your life. When you begin to say, oh my goodness, it's all about me, 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 self, self, self. i got to look out for me. If I don't look out for me, who will? But if you let that die, it will grow a crop of selflessness that will bring you more meaning and purpose than selfishness ever could. What about the seed of anger? Demanding my own way and demanding my own rights. If you will let that seed die, You'll no longer look in the eyes of your kids or your employees or your spouse or your dad and see fear and see anger. You will begin to see real relationship, real intimacy grow. The produce in your relationships occur when you let that habit of anger die, when your negativity begins to die and you begin to spread in your life the seeds of thankfulness and contentment and joy. That is where you produce much grain. You find your life by losing the things you thought you, you needed. When you die, to always accumulating. And instead, you find contentment and enjoying the fields around you. You die to fear and you find freedom. She says, my bread breaks the curse. My bread promises you security. And my bread promises you a way to find real life through death. So trust me, he would say, to be your bread. Trust me in three types of bread. I want to be your daily bread. If you're struggling with grief or the problem of evil and you want to know that one day somebody's going to fix that, I'll be your daily bread. And in the meantime, you're struggling with bitterness and anger. Trust me, I'll be the judge and you can be free from all that, all that pain you're carrying. The daily bread not to worry because I'm in control. The daily bread to forgive because I am the ultimate forgiver. I can be your comfort, I can be your joy, I can be your strength. Trust me to be your daily bread. As Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But trust Him to be your rising bread. I'm going to trust Him that if He raised Himself from the dead, I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to hook my wagon up to that guy who defeated death. That I can know for sure I will be in heaven because I've been forgiven based on what he did. That won't waste on what I do. And third, you begin to trust him for dying bread. But that sounds so backward, Chad. 
You find your life by losing it. You find life through death. I've been always about me, me, me protecting. You're telling me I need to find life by letting go? Trust God. Believe His way works. Begin dying to those things that you held so dearly and watch the crops that appear in your life. Because when you believe and partake of His bread, it motivates you to give bread to others. In fact, I just got back from going with a team down to Cancun two weeks ago where we built a soccer field in Tres Reyes with a team of 18 guys down our hands and knees in the hot sun, literally moving 17 tons of sand and rubber by hand and pushing it into the field. But the reason you care for those who can never give you anything in return, the reason you love on other people, is because he came to you to give you his bread. So you go and give bread to others. We have a team right now down in Belize. 126, I think was my email this morning, surgeries on the first day, giving away $2 million worth of services and pharmaceuticals and medical care and surgeries are going on this week. Teams giving up their, their vacations, giving up their time to go down and help people they don't even know, sometimes can't even speak the language. Why would you do that? Dying bread. When you believe in his bread, you share bread with others. And this week as a church, we will gather together and we will pack 350,000 meals for people on the other side of the world. Because when you believe in his bread, you give bread to those who are hurting. So the band does this last song. Maybe you want this song to be your prayer. God, I need to trust you for bread. Maybe you need the daily bread. Maybe you need the rising bread. Or maybe you need the dying bread. But use the words of this song to be a voice of you talking to God. Let's listen. Well, I wish that song was true of me. And don't you, as you hear that, like, oh man, I just, I wish that was true. I wish I hungered for God, or at least the benefits He gives me, joy and peace and forgiveness, like I hunger for food or ice cream. I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer. Just an honest prayer says, God, I want a hunger. I want a hunger for you like I have hunger for other things. Let's pray together. God, I'm hungry for more meaning. I'm hungry for more purpose. God, now I know what to do. You want me to believe. I accept your rising bread promised to me. I choose to live the dying bread of dying to self. But God, what I really need this morning is your daily bread. Give me enough to handle what's on my mind. Give me enough strength to face what's before me. Give me enough comfort to wrestle with my mourning. And God, give me the bread to remind me that I'm not alone. In Jesus' name.
Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here as we continue Clash of the Titans. We're going to continue again next week with Asclepius. I look forward to seeing you there. If you're new to Horizon, third door on your left, we'd love to say hi. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. Thanks again.